morning. Today's scripture reading um, comes from the Sermon on the Mount passage, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's not printed in your bulletin, so you can turn there in your Bibles. It comes from Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 28. Read along with me. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. And the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeing, seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he has trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person... It passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and is given to us in love. Well, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the matchless name of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm incredibly excited to be with you again this morning and open God's word. I, I want to continue working through the series on the Beatitudes by looking at what it means as Jesus teaches that blessed are the pure at heart, blessed as the pure at heart. But I want to start with prayer. Can we pray? Father, would you, um, would you teach us as we turn to your word this morning? Would you, by the power of your spirit, would you be at work in your people's hearts and minds that uh, we might not simply be hearers of your word, but doers? Would you rid us of the distractions and the cares of this world that we might singularly focus on you? And now, Father, I pray even for me as as one called to proclaim your word, would you use me to preach your gospel with boldness and clarity that all the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight because you alone, Lord, are my strength and my redeemer. And Father, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I um, was introduced to Reformed theology not as uh, the member of a church who held to its beliefs or because I learned of it in a classroom, but as a college student. Uh, I had something that seemed pretty foreign to this generation of young people. Uh, It was one of those alarm clock radios that would wake me up every morning with this uh, raspy voice preacher named Dr. R.C. Sproul. 
in his uh, teachings on the Beatitudes, he, he described them as, as the keys to Christian joy. Not only then to go on to completely dismantle everything I thought it meant to have joy. I want to come back to this talk, but, but we must understand that in, in light of this idea of joy, there's, there's some helpful context that we need. Uh, the Beatitudes are taught uh, in Matthew's gospel, but they're also taught in Luke's gospel. And today I want to emphasize um, the way that Matthew kind of records this for us, because it seems as if Matthew writes with uh, this great acknowledgement of the narrative of the Old Testament for which he draws our attention. And he points us then to its fulfillment and the person and work of Jesus. But it's um, with the same kind of presuppositional narrative of knowing Jesus's background story that we've got to look at the message of the Beatitudes because it is all about Jesus. And Matthew, for whom our tradition holds, is the author of this book as is an eyewitness disciple of Jesus whose work as a tax collector is evident even in the way that he writes with, in, with uh, this intention to incredible detail and precision. And by far the most definitive characteristic of Matthew about Jesus is that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the, the very God manifested in the flesh, and we can be sure of this. So Matthew tells us, well, the stories of, of one after another of Jesus fulfilling the prophetic messages of the prophets, and especially Isaiah, because Matthew perpetually alludes that Jesus is the one to whom the prophet said would come. And so we see that in the baptism of Jesus, we know that the Spirit of God rests just as prophesied in Isaiah 11 and 2, or the way that Matthew 4 and Isaiah 9 are this parallel of the prophecy that Jesus is the one through whom all the government of the world would rest. And how does this connect to the idea of the Beatitudes as the keys to Christian joy? It's because true joy is found only in Jesus. So the Beatitudes call us out of the lies of our world, and it teaches us a completely different reality, an upside-down way of living that this world cannot understand outside of the life and light in Christ Jesus. It is this kingdom-shaped life that turns all that we believe to be true on its head, providing a new and better way that leads to the flourishing of humanity and the glory of God. And as a pastor to college students, I'm, I'm particularly aware of how blessings and joy are treated as synonymous. And yet the scripture takes an entirely different perspective. Uh, conflating the ideas of blessings and joy gives the root cause of why we see so many eagerly equate individualistic materialism with blessings completely missing the fact that we serve a God who is a good and gracious Father who provides the very breath that we breathe, so why would he not give you the things we need in life? Fam, our salvation in Christ alone should bring us this true and lasting joy. And we must move past trivializing God 
and thinking he's only to serve our self-gratification. And to this point, I'm sure that you've heard that, that this series, that blessings used in the Beatitudes are far from simplicity of happiness, but rather intended to reflect a heart posture, a posture of peace and comfort and even stability that is complete in Jesus. And so the Beatitudes are, are not a promise of a good life. It's not even the promise of what the world would call a blessed life. But it does mean a kingdom way of living. And Jesus comes and the Gospels tell the story of his message of a kingdom inaugurated within him and far different from the cultural pursuits of fun and pleasure. But we are to live in a flourishing that demonstrates the faithfulness of our God at work to transform us. And know then that to live in this kingdom way, the way of the Beatitudes means living a gospel-shaped life. One that daily means bearing the cross with suffering and suffering and sacrifice and the promise of eternal inheritance of life forever in his presence. And to dig into what it means to be blessed, though, look back with me at Luke 11, which says, in verse 14 to 23, it says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And while others to test them kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he uh, knowing that thought said to them, uh, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and the divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? And therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. And whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me, scatters. Uh, this 11th chapter in Luke's gospel begins, of course, in the first 11 verses uh, with Jesus teaching the disciples to pray, and then it turns directly to the story of Jesus casting the demon out from a man who suffered greatly. And Luke's gospel gives us at least 16 mentions of demons, and in each of them we see Jesus uh, demonstrate his sovereign authority. Uh, the stories of Jesus casting out demons in Luke 4 and again in Luke 8 even emphasize Jesus' divinity as the pre-existent one who is God himself. And Beelzebub, though, is the name given to the one who was the prince of demons. Uh, it is Satan himself, uh, which means that they suggested that Jesus used Satan to get Satan out. 
And this is just as absurd as it sounds because even Joe's, uh, Jesus shows some degree of frustration with these dudes because look at how he responds. He responds in two ways. First, Jesus says something like this, and, and this is Jonah's own version. He says, man, y'all, this is dumb. <laughs> he says, this is dumb because how can you cast out a demon using a demon? Not only that, though, because uh, Jesus calls out the hypocrisy because he says, if, man, if this is one of y'all homeboys casting out a demon, man, y'all would be cool with that. But the moment is something that you can't take credit for, you got a problem. Look with me, though, at verse 24 through 26. It says, it says, when the unclean spirit has gone out from a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none of it, it says, I will return uh, to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. Uh, this teaching from Jesus at the same time is directive to the one who had been delivered, but it also applies to us that we don't return to the foolish things we've been freed from. And then it directs us towards this exchange that helps us understand what it means to be blessed. In verses 27 and 28, it says, as he said these things, a woman with a crowd in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. I love these verses because right in the middle of Jesus' teaching, uh, this sister shouts out, and I know uh, the musicians uh, have experienced this with someone. Uh, when you're in the middle of a piece and somebody is just loud and wrong. <laughs> uh, I taught here in uh, Guilford County Schools for a while in, in middle school, and uh, I would get completely through a lesson, and somehow it, it never failed. Uh, I'd get to the end of the lesson, and somebody would raise their hand. And they'd ask me a question that knew, regardless of what I had stood there and taught for the last hour, they didn't get anything I'd heard, they had heard. That's exactly what Jesus, I'm sure, has to feel like in this moment, because this sister thinks she's saying something profound, and Jesus is like, nah, not quite. And while it's easy for us to call out the material things we call blessings, the truth is that Jews, what Jesus shows here is way more sobering. And while the culture teaches that our lives deserve these worldly things, one thing that it teaches is far more valuable than the material things, it says, is relationships. J.D. Jackson, in uh, the book, The Value of Relationships, Principles, uh, to Building a Solid Foundation is a horrible book, but it does describe, um, it does describe uh, our relationships as uh, the one true priceless thing in our lives. And it spends chapter after chapter detailing uh, the way to cultivate relationships in life that lead to riches unforeseen. 
And I know that while um, many of us have probably been taught to think this way, is this true in light of the gospel? I mean, if this is true, where is the value and worth of Jesus? Because in God's economy, even the relationship of mother and child, the relationship that epitomizes the quantitative value of relationships itself, means absolutely nothing compared to life in Christ. This teaching shouldn't surprise us, though. Because in Mark 3 and verses 33 through 35, when Jesus' mother and his brother show up to take him home, because uh, verse 21 says, man, they actually believed at this point that Jesus had just completely lost it. And Jesus' response to them is, my family is the people who do the will of God. You know, I I often get asked how my family and I have learned to to deal with being um, the only minority or often one of very few minorities in spaces like this. And my answer is uh, far less complex um, than I think most people think, um, because the reality is that I hope it means uh, for you that you've got to know that you've got some brothers and sisters in the family of God who share the same blood of Christ that is in you that far exceeds the value of racial and ethnic divisions. And I say this to you because the people to whom Jesus is teaching here in Luke 11 saw themselves as the nation of Israel. God's chosen people with some sense of of guaranteed salvation, and yet Jesus is giving them a reality check that this blessed life is about God's plan of redemption that comes through the saving grace of Jesus manifested in a life of obedience to the very word of God. Because that, friends, is what it means to truly be blessed. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, the Apostle Paul writes, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Here we see that the blessed people are given every spiritual blessing, and he uses uh, the past participle because your calling to this blessed life came before the world itself was created. You didn't do anything to earn it. You can't fake it or shake it, but God in his mercy has lavished it on you just because he loved you and called you according to his good purpose. If this is what it means to be blessed, what does it mean to have a pure heart? And and if you're asking that question, I'm glad you asked, because in the book, The Narrow Way, which is my favorite modern exegesis of the Beatitudes, uh, Paul Carter says, blessed are the pure in heart means that blessed are the people who have not been corrupted by this world, who can still see beauty and whose hearts incline toward that which is right, loving, and good. 
at a genuinely foundational level, sanctification is about growing in grace. It is the maturation of wisdom and knowledge and the illumination of our heart's affections leading us to thirst for more of him. And so immediately we're being transformed and in our lives walk with Jesus, we're living to reflect his glory increasingly. If this is true, we know that a blessed life is not about happy marriages or having gifted kids whom everyone loves. It's not about the health. It's not about the jobs we go to every day. It's not about our financial stability or travel to see the world because these things, man, they, they're good. But they are not going to lead you to a pure heart. And as I studied to be with you all, I found uh, some scholars saw that the Beatitudes uh, as, as a measure of progression. Uh, so we start in the state of being poor in spirit because uh, sin corrupts the, the perfect design of God in our lives, severing uh, the right relationship with him that needs the saving grace of Jesus for restoration. Uh, so we mourn uh, because our sins are many, and yet we can also rightly sing what riches of kindness he has lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cause. We stood neath a debt we could not afford. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Or, or we grow in meekness, recognizing only his will is sufficient for our lives. And, and what comes out of that foundation is the hunger and thirst for righteousness, that the very desires of our hearts are for him and the expansion of his kingdom that produces in us the fruits of mercy and forgiveness and the purity of heart. The Greek term for purity used in Matthew 5, though, means to be cleaned, to be uh, blameless, to be uh, free of guilt, which is fascinating for me because it also then implies that purity comes as the result of pruning and refinement, which means that the pursuit of purity means that some things need to be cut away from our lives or even cast through the fire. The Greek word for heart, though, does, does mean the, 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 the human organ, but it also recognizes that this organ is the central point of our lives, which is why later in Matthew 15, uh, Jesus says that it is out of the heart that comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, because these are the things that make us dirty and unpure. Kierkegaard wrote a book called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. Uh, and I actually looked at the title and I was just like, man, that's, that's actually true if that one thing is Jesus. And what Jesus teaches us in these Beatitudes is, is not just the pursuit of the changes in social norms, but a change in the hearts of men. And I got to leave. Got to lovingly warn us, though, that it's what's in our heart that God judges. You know, I've been around church folks my whole life. My, my, my parents were in ministry. And I know the truth is about church folks is despite the tame nature of our actions, for many of us, 
It's what's in our hearts that is a hot mess. The reality is that the only way to a pure heart is in the cleansing blood of Jesus. And David figures this out well before Jesus arrives on the scene because he writes in Psalm 51, man, he says, create in me a pure heart. O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that if God himself doesn't do this thing, we know it's not happening. I want to close this morning, though, with with looking at Titus 2, verse 11 through 14, which says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession. Who are zealous for good works. This fam is why the gospel is good news. It's the news that our great God, in seeing the stains of sin in our lives, has on the cross purified a people of his own possession. So maybe you're with us this morning and you're you're looking at this this life that you're living and you're hearing this message on on a pure heart. That's something you've been looking for. Know that it comes only in Jesus, and you can trust him. Or maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a minute, and you know that the reality is you might not have been out here doing a lot of crazy, but your heart is a wreck. Know that his grace is sufficient even for you. Let's pray. Father, would you bless your word this morning? Would you let it resonate in our hearts and in our minds in a way that um, would never allow us to be the same again? And that we would live always in this pursuit of the blessed purity in heart. Father, we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.